0: You are listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now, here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and
1: the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Before we get to this episode, we have an exciting announcement to share with you guys. We're partnering the podcast with the National FPA, or the Financial Planning Association. The whole focus of this podcast and why we've been doing what we've been doing is to highlight financial planning and its importance, both for us as professionals and also for our clients. I tell people that the FPA is the soul of financial planning and I can't think of a better group to move forward with this mission. As you all know, the FPA has been hugely instrumental in my development as a professional. I can't wait to share more ways that we're gonna be partnering with them to bring you some of the absolute best that the financial planning profession has to offer. Getting back to this week's episode, we're talking with Blair who who's transitioned several times in her career. She started at a brokerage firm, found a financial planning job where she truly found financial planning, but had to move soon after. She created her own RAA, then subsequently decided to join an existing firm. Blair highlights the wealth of opportunity that is in financial planning. Whether you're interested in being the chief investment officer, a financial planner, or being one of the architects of a new SMA or separately managed account, Blair tackles the ambiguous question of what is financial planning and shares her tips for lifelong learning and developing as a professional.
2: We hope you enjoy. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Blair.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So how did you get started in financial planning?
0: I first started in in investments and um, about five and a half years into my career at a brokerage firm. It was 2009 and I was laid off and I was introduced to a financial planning firm by a mutual fund wholesaler who covered both the brokerage firm and the RIA and that introduction led to a position and um, I was finishing my CFA charter at the time and learning... um, learning financial planning from this firm and quickly um took the CFP and have been a financial planner ever since and that was in 2010.
2: So let's talk about the brokerage uh firm that you were at. So for a lot of the listeners who might not know what that means, can you tell them like what is what is a brokerage firm and kind of what were what was your day-to-day like?
0: Sure. A uh, brokerage firm that you know the biggest ones the wirehouses. I was at UBS, Merrill Lynch is another one. Um You know, Morgan Stanley, they've all merged. Uh, There used to be a lot more names, but a brokerage firm is uh, a firm where. Advisors are registered representatives and they are licensed to sell investment products to their clients. And on the surface, it may look a lot like uh, an RIA in that they're giving advice to their clients and they're implementing potentially financial plans. There are CFPs who work in brokerage firms, Uh, but it is a business model that is based on commissions and uh, production of fees from their clients.
2: So you worked at uh, UBS for those years for almost five, we said five years? Five and a half, yeah. Five and a half years. And so then you started work, so you you laid off, you're working at um, a financial planning firm. And so were you looking for financial planning or did you kind of stumble upon it?
0: I stumbled upon it. Um, It was a wonderful happenstance that um, I was introduced to Wealthstream Advisors, which is an RIA in Manhattan, um, and joined on with them and started learning financial planning. In my time at UBS, I had um, run financial plans through an early iteration of Money Guide Pro, which the brokers at UBS had access to. So I had some uh, understanding of what financial planning was, but I would say it was on a very superficial level. And um, so the happenstance of being introduced through this mutual fund wholesaler to this firm is really how I became a financial planner.
2: When did you notice the difference between the two firms? Like after you started working for this new financial planner like what what tipped you off that there was something different?
0: The first tip was in the interview process when they told me that I was going to lose my Series 7 license. And that was a big shocker at first. I didn't understand what that meant or why I was unable um, to keep my license. Series 7 was a difficult test. Um, it took me, you know, it was a six-hour all-day test. And I couldn't fathom the fact that um, that I would be giving that up by joining this firm. Um, so that was the first tip-off. And then from day one of joining the firm, I knew that it was not going to be a problem for me. I knew that I never wanted to go back to being a licensed registered rep, that I really enjoyed the process of being on the same side of the table as the client and not looking at the client as a way to increase production or fees, but looking at the client as someone who I'm being paid to give advice to. And so while on the on the surface for the client, it looks very similar from, from one business model to the other. Um, I immediately felt the difference From the moment I walked in the door, even in the interview process, I could tell that this was a completely different business model. I had never heard of the term RIA. I didn't even know what it meant. Um, So it was very interesting um, that all this sort of happened to me by luck and chance. Um, And I'm very glad that it did because um, my career has only been on an upward trajectory since that day.
2: So you are at Wellstream Advisors. And so that's where you got introduced to like the CFP exam and, and kind of that world. That's where you got introduced to the CFP exam, right?
0: Correct. They quickly asked me to take the CFP. I joined WealthStream in July of 2009. I had just finished level three of the CFA exam that June. And they said, well, what do you think about taking the CFP? And I said, wow, I just finished, you know, all three levels of the CFA exam taking level three twice, by the way. Um, Hmm. And uh, I said, okay, I I think I can do it. And luckily, I was able to be exempt from the um, education requirement for CFP. So I was able to just study for the exam and take it. And so that's what I did. I took a few months off and I ended up studying for the exam and taking it in March of 2010 Um, and luckily passed. And I've been, been a CFP certificate ever since.
2: So did you feel like the CFP exam gave you what you needed, or did you feel like you already had a lot of that information already with the CFA and kind of your previous background?
0: It was, no, the CFA um, only covers investment-related topics. And so while I had a huge leg up on any of the investment-related portion of the CFP exam, um, I had to learn a much broader array of information um, about financial planning. The hardest parts for me were insurance. I don't come from an insurance background. It's still confusing for me. Um, and tax was also very hard. So it was, I always say that the CFA exam is very deep um, and difficult from an investment standpoint. And the CFP exam is difficult because it's so broad. And it may not go as deep as the CFA, um, but the difficulty is having, the, is having to study such a broad array of topics. Um, of course, I would still say that the CFA exam is much more difficult and rigorous process. Um, <laughs> but the CFP really does give you that broad array of topics that you need um, to be a financial planner.
2: I worked at a broker dealer for a while and they, they said they did financial planning. Like it was kind of like back of the envelope type stuff where they just have the conversations about insurance or about uh, whatever it may be. Did you find that at UBS? Were you having, like, were clients gravitating towards financial planning conversations? The way
0: that I used financial planning software at UBS was a way to sell the asset allocation recommendation. We would put in a minimum amount of information about the client. And the whole purpose of it was as sort of a back tool to confirm the asset allocation that was being recommended. I was really fortunate to always work with advisors at UBS um, who were creating asset allocation models of different managers for their clients. And they weren't necessarily doing one-off stock picking or or you know bond sales. They really were looking at full portfolio asset allocation. And so the, the financial plan was sort of a superficial, is almost not fair because we are talking about 2005. Yeah. Um far back is that? Um, but it was a simple way to confirm the investment allocation that was being sold to the client.
2: Thank you for kind of going into all of that. I know it's sometimes... Defining what is financial planning and what is not financial planning, I think, is a really important conversation and one that's hard to define if you don't, if you haven't kind of lived in both worlds. I agree. Yeah, so you're at WealthStream Advisors. What was your next your next uh, professional step?
0: I would still be at WealthStream Advisors today if I had not met my husband. Um, so it was just sort of a life event. My husband is a native New Orleanian um, and lives in New Orleans. And after we met, I made the decision to move down um, because. Although it was not an easy transition for me, it was easier for me to move to New Orleans than for him to try to move to, to New York. And so that is really the only reason I'm not still at Wellstream Advisor. So I moved to New Orleans in January of 2011 and did not immediately have a job. In fact, surveyed the landscape of registered investment advisory firms in New Orleans talked to what I thought was almost all of them and didn't find a, a spot for myself. And so I made the decision to go out on my own and um, try to build a book of clients from scratch. I wanted to replicate the wealth stream model where I was doing both um, asset management and financial planning. Um, and so I partnered with a very small fee-only RIA in New Orleans at first and because I was afraid of the setup of a firm, I didn't understand what it took to register an RIA, and so I partnered first with a small RIA, and then eventually went out and ended up creating my own firm um, a couple of years later.
2: Can you tell me more of like w- that process and what that looked like for you? Like, was it something that you like? Did you know you wanted to be on your own, like be the entrepreneur, or was it more of just there weren't jobs to be had?
0: It was more, there weren't jobs to be had. I really prefer working with the team and we can explain how I ended up at 30 North investments, um, later, but it was really that I wasn't finding a home in new Orleans for what I wanted to do, which was to provide, uh, investment and financial planning advice for a fee. And I just didn't find a firm. Most of the firms here are, um, lifestyle practices or practices where there's multiple family members and they're really just looking for support staff. Um, And so the reason I ended up founding my own firm uh, was because I didn't, I just wasn't finding other opportunities in New Orleans. The process of registering my RIA, which was called Ignite Investments and Planning. And it was back in
2: 2013,
0: um, a, the only financial planning and investment advisory firm focused specifically on Gen X and Gen Y clients, um, and that process was—I mean—the paperwork was really easy. Um, the hard part is uh, is acquiring clients. Nope. I'm not a natural. I'm not a natural salesperson. I'm an introvert, and so my real challenge was trying to get from zero revenue up to a revenue that actually paid me um, any sort of salary at all.
2: And were you able to find success, like with the finding clients and developing that out?
0: I did have a small amount of success.
2: I didn't give it
0: enough time. And the only reason for that is because not too long after I finally set up Ignite Investments and Planning and was kind of moving along um, with the digital marketing strategy, uh, 30 North Investments called me, their founder and CIO uh, was leaving the firm. And they were looking for a new CIO and it was an opportunity with a team that I really respected. So it was almost too good to be true. And so I ended up um, taking my clients and moving to 30 North Investments. And so that's been four years now. So um, I kind of went through two and a half years of a slog, um, never really got over the hump, but I, I just don't think I had been doing it long enough to know if I was going to succeed or fail. And this opportunity to join 30 North came along. And and I'm very glad it did because I really like working in a team environment.
2: And so did you work in team environments in the past? Yes. Um, At UBS,
0: I was always on teams. Um, And of course, at Wellstream, it was a one firm, one team solution. So absolutely, I've always worked in teams. That was really a couple of years there where I was working on my own um, and it was, you know, sometimes working out of my home, which was not for me. And then other times working out of co-working spaces, which was a little better, but I it, it was still working alone. Um, and it, I just I didn't prefer it. It wasn't for me. Um, since I've been at 30 North, I've become a better planner, a better investor, um, a better I'm a chief compliance officer, all because of the the team environment and my team members asking questions and pushing me to go further and stretch the limits of my uh, comfort zone and abilities. And that's where I really prefer to work is in a team environment.
2: So I talk with a lot of young planners and some of them really – there's a lot of tension and conflict within their teams uh, and where they're working – What specifically about your teams or kind of how you approach your teams has made that a really successful place for you?
0: It's really about getting in the right team, Um, team dynamics. It's very important to understand that you have diversity of skill set, diversity of thought, um, and then you need buy-in from your team members of what you're trying to accomplish, um, that you're all on board. With wanting to accomplish the same things, that you have the same values, that's extremely important. So I think when people are feeling tension within a team, it's probably that they're on the wrong team. I've been in that situation. Uh, It's not fun. It doesn't mean that everything is utopia when you're on the right team. You're still going to have differences of opinion um, and situations that come up where you're not always on agreement with each other. And that's a good thing. You're not supposed to have groupthink. Um, but I would just say to be patient and give it time uh, and give your career time because one of the things that to, be, to become a financial planner you need to do is to learn from others and sometimes you might have to learn from others on not the best team. Um, and so I would just, you know, not, not spend too much of your effort worrying about the tensions of, of who you're working with, especially if you're a young planner.
2: And so you kind of had it, you talk about, you know, making sure that you have the same values and the same vision, um, as your team. And did you kind of have that sense throughout your entire career path or was that obvious? I mean, we assume it's going to evolve, but kind of where did you start or what were the places that you went to, to really identify that vision and the values that you had as a planner?
0: I think I didn't give my, give a lot of thought to values, Um, When I first started my career, I have said in other forums, and I'm embarrassed to say that what interested me about a career in finance was the kind of rah-rah, competitive, go make money nature that was, you know, sometimes personified in movies. Um, So I didn't enter this business necessarily with the right intentions. And over time, I've just come to see... I've been inside the sausage factory. I know what the wrong incentives can do, um, the client situations that can arise from being in a a high sales-based environment. So it was really my transition out of the brokerage firm into an RIA firm where I started to think about values and what mattered to me and integrity and dedication to lifelong learning and all the things that Um, the team at 30 North, we're all in agreement on. So I would just say that that sort of evolved over time. I just, I graduated college. I was, you know, magna cum laude with honors. I thought, this is great. I'm ready to go out in the world and run things. And then, you know, boom, my first job is sales assistant at a brokerage firm where I'm taking messages and, you know, binding uh, presentations. And so that was a real um, hard stop for me um, to start... So start like that. And so I really wasn't thinking at that time about what my values were. I think that really came with um, with time and with um, maturity into becoming a professional.
2: One of the things that you talked about is this idea of lifelong learning. So what does that look like for you? Kind of what have been – obviously you got the CFA, the CFP – Is it just like the continuing education for those elements or I mean, where do you find yourself continuing to learn?
0: Yeah. If I, if, if I didn't need to be out in the world making money and earning a living for my family and myself, I would just basically go to school all the time. I love learning. Um, So once I was done with the CFA and the CFP, I said, okay, I don't have to prove to anyone else that I can take tests. You know, I don't need to take any more tests. Um, But the investment profession, the financial planning profession, they're not stopping with what I learned in my textbooks. New, new textbooks are being written. Uh, new research is being done. Um, so in order to keep up my skills um, as, an, as a financial planner and investment advisor, I have to keep learning. And so part of that is continuing education. Another part of it, though, right now is I'm pursuing a master's in financial planning. Um you would think that the CFP was enough. I I just decided I wanted to get a master's in financial planning. Uh if I had all the time in the world, I would I would love to do a PhD uh in finance. Um so I just I enjoy learning. Um one of my personal goals is also at some point to become bilingual. We'll see if I ever get around to that. Um a couple of us here at the CFA Society Louisiana. We're also interested in taking the sommelier exam, um, which is the one, you know, the, the people at the restaurant that recommend wines. Um, the sommelier exam is probably the only exam in the world that has a lower pass rate than the CFA. So we're kind of type A in that way, <laughs> um, but I just love learning. And so it's a huge part of, of my dedication to being a professional and um, making sure that I keep up with with the subjects as People continue to write papers and, and add to the knowledge base.
2: So do you find yourself writing a lot?
0: I wish I had more time to write. Um, writing is an excellent way to, to learn. Um I have committed to writing our quarterly letter here at the firm. So once a quarter I write a market commentary. I'm also committed to writing um one blog post a month, which sounds really sad, but when you think that there are four of us doing it, we are we are blogging on our website at least once a week. Um it's not enough. I wish I wrote more. Um I enjoy it. I sometimes have to force it though. Um, cause I can really easily find myself trying to write something and then looking over at, you know, whatever the latest news is on Twitter or, you know, getting distracted in some other way. So I, I really do have to force myself to write. And I think it is a skill. I've talked to some of the more prolific writers out there and they say, once you just get used to writing something every day or multiple times a day, um, you get better at it. And so I would love to, um increase my skills in that way. Um, so maybe, maybe next year.
2: So let's talk about Twitter. Cause you're really active on Twitter. How, how did you get started? Um, kind of started in that space
0: when I moved to New Orleans and I was out on my own, um, for the first time with zero clients and had never really sold before. I was always in a support capacity at the brokerage firm and at the, at, and at Wealthstream. Um, I was looking for ways to basically confirm that I knew what I was talking about. Um, I was also still under 30 at that time. I thought no one is ever going to give me the benefit of the doubt um, because of my age. I just, I couldn't wait to turn 30. So at least I would be 30. Um, so that might seem a little more confirming to people. Um, I really struggled with what I called reverse ageism when I was younger. Um which really I just needed to be more patient. So anyway, in 2011, when I moved to New Orleans, um, I was blogging. And so I, I had heard about Twitter and opened a Twitter account and started sharing what I was writing and then realized that Twitter was so much more than just a place to post your own information. It was a way to connect with other advisors. It was a way to follow news more efficiently because you can follow the actual reporters instead of um, the publications that they work for, um, and just started connecting into a community there, and really started using Twitter as a tool to be my morning news feed. Um, it's amazing the things that I've done on Twitter. I always tell this story. I was back in New York visiting a friend one weekend, and I wanted to go to a concert, and I just kind of put it out on Twitter. Hey, this concert sold out. Does anybody know anybody who has tickets? And I I linked this ticket account and they reposted it. And within like 30 minutes, I had somebody saying, I'm going to meet you out front and I'm just going to give you three tickets. And so I ended up getting free tickets to a sold out concert because of Twitter. So Twitter is the most amazing communication tool, a way to really connect with so many different types of communities. And so I'm I call myself a little bit of a Twitter evangelist because of that, because not only has it helped me meet other people, um, I've been asked to speak at conferences. Um, I've been asked to um, qu- be quoted in publications. I've created relationships with reporters where I can be, um, you know, experts for them. Um, it, it's just, it's really opened doors for me in, in such an amazing way that I, I, I can't, suggest more to people to just give it a try because it's amazing.
2: That's really neat. And it's so funny to me, but advisors really love Twitter. Like it's one of the most active places that I found.
0: Yeah, I, I, they do. And I think there's probably all these other pockets of Twitter, which are really even more amazing and other communities that we don't even know of because we're not looking there. And I suspect that there's probably some really unbelievable things going on on Twitter if you're in different communities. Um, but yeah, the advisor community is one of the, one, one of those sub communities, which is just really amazing.
2: Oh, that's great. So has it, I mean, it's obviously helped, you know, with kind of building those relationships with reporters and things like that, but like from a career standpoint, I mean, you're speaking at conferences and I guess that does help your career, but have you found it helped with your like relationship with clients and kind of the actual, um, Product of financial planning? So uh, people always ask
0: me, do you ever get clients um, from Twitter? And I would always say, not directly. Um, My experience with client generation, lead generation, and referrals has always been introductions through networks. Anytime I've ever had somebody call me just off the internet and come in and want to meet, they just don't become clients. I don't know what it is. Uh, I know other planners and advisors have tremendous success. Um, I just I haven't seen it as sort of a lead generation tool. But what it is, what your, what your online presence is, is a confirmation. Because most um, clients today are going to Google you before they even pick up the phone to call you or schedule a meeting. And so all of this online presence is a way to you know, confirm to prospects um, that you are legitimate and that you are a thought leader, really. Um, and so I, I, I don't have any way of connecting it with the business. But I will tell you that I've had some really interesting just anecdotal situations. Um, you know, there's an individual in who works in my office building who is a prospect right now. Um, and I've been walking, you know, out of the office and had a comment, oh, have fun in Denver. And I I look up and I'm like, okay, thank you. How do you know about that? And it's because of Twitter, because I had just wrote, you know, I'm out of here going on vacation, you know, and tweeted that. And so I know people are following me. Um, And so I I think it's additive. I just don't have a way of, of quantifying it in the way that maybe some other planners and advisors do.
2: So building your presence online, you so you started when you were kind of out on your own looking for a job, but you've been able to continue it while you're working for somebody else. So, have there been compliance issues, or kind of what from the employer-employee relationship has that been like?
0: So I'm really lucky in that um, um, I'm at a small firm. We don't have um, sort of entrenched. Um, ideas about many things at all. Um, We have a social media policy that we all adhere to. Um, We review, you know, every year what our policy is and what we're agreeing to not put on the internet. And so there's a leniency there that may not exist at a larger, more um, not established is not the right word, but a firm that already has a lot of processes in place um, and if we grow and add more people, we will probably have to think about what our social media policy is. Um, but right now, it just happens to work. Um, we haven't had any issues with employees posting um, inappropriate things on, on, um, on social media. And so it's working for now. And hopefully, it will continue to work that way.
2: And so you don't have like a personal website or anything that you're kind of building up outside of your firm?
0: I don't. I did, um, shut down my website when I rolled into 30 North because we really just wanted to keep a one firm, one brand, uh, sort of website out there. Um, and so that was just a decision that we made.
2: And so from your perspective, obviously you're with a firm that you really enjoy working with and and is successful. Um, Do you think that there's a place for advisors to maintain outside like web presence outside of their firm?
0: Oh, yes. I've seen it work really well with other advisors. Um, You know, and it may, it may be something that we would, you know, revisit again um, because I think that, you know, there are, are so many things going on out there with digital marketing or having a presence, whether it's advisors that are, on television or, you know, there's all sorts of business models where having separate websites is absolutely working for people. Um, So I I don't think that that just because we've decided not to do that, that it's a bad decision.
2: Before we get to kind of talking more about like, what do you, what does your day-to-day look like? And what, what is your job function right now? You mentioned this reverse ageism. And I think that's a really big issue for young advisors of feeling like, If only I can get to 30, like you said, so I can say I'm in my thirties when clients ask how old you are. Uh, What kind of, what are your thoughts on that? Especially speaking to the young advisor um, who may be in their early twenties working in this, in this profession.
0: Yeah, I would just say that careers are long and the time is going to pass so much more so much quicker than you would ever imagine. I know it seems like a lot of time when you're in it, but afterwards you're going to come out the other side and you're going to wish that you were still 23 years old. So um, be patient. I remember talking with someone, a colleague at UBS and saying, I'm never going to get anywhere. It's taking too long. I've been an assistant for four years. Uh, my career is going nowhere. And he looked at me and he said, Aren't you taking level three of the CFA? I mean, you're going to be a CFA charter holder by the time you're 27. Do you realize how amazing that is? Um, and at the time, it just seemed like it would be forever till anything was going to happen. But it's it does eventually happen. And while you're in that learning phase, that new that you know new professional phase, take the time to learn from others. Um, you know, experience is it is worth something. And um, even though you may have new and better ideas, that doesn't replace the fact that the people that you may be working for or working with have had real life experiences that you can learn from. And don't be afraid to learn other things. I mean, there are so many skills that I learned in other jobs that I thought were completely useless. When I went out on my own, I had to know those things. I had to know all the paperwork required to open different types of accounts. I had to understand operations. I had to understand compliance. And I did because I, that's what I did in a brokerage firm in my first job. I did all the grunt work and luckily I knew how to do it and it wasn't an issue for me. So I would just say be patient, um, try to soak up as much knowledge as you can while you're in that situation and, um, and enjoy it because once you kind of break out of that and you become a senior advisor, a senior planner or partner in your firm, there's going to be a lot of big decisions with a lot of weight that you're going to have to make. And, you know, that responsibility is going to come um, and those aren't always fun decisions. So just enjoy not being burdened with those kind of things right now um, while you're young.
2: Oh, such good advice. So can you tell me more about, uh, 30 North and kind of how it's structured? Like how many are, how many team members are there? Um, yeah. General structure.
0: 30 North investments. Um, we are a firm that has a Genesis, uh, from 1997. So we are 20 years old. Um, the, the current management, um, kind of purchased the firm from the founder back in 2010, And we had a name change, and so that's when the name 30 North came around. We're located in New Orleans. We have another office in Baton Rouge. Um, There are five people total at the firm, three partners, um, which are myself, Suzanne Medier, and Fritz Gamilla. And then we have uh, another advisor and a client service manager. So we're very small. Um, We work – we have um, basically three areas of business. Um, wealth management, which is where we work with individuals on investment management and financial planning. Um, we have retirement plan um, advisory where we work with plan sponsors and even sometimes plan participants on 401k plan design and investment lineups and uh, a whole other slew of you know retirement plan consulting services. And then we have a newer area of our business, um, which is asset management. And that stems from A project that Suzanne and I started working on over two years ago, looking at buying stocks, um, buying the stocks of companies that have more women in leadership. Um, We did a lot of research on this. And so we ended up launching um, a separately managed account called the Women Impact Strategy back in 2016, April 2016. And so we're building up our assets in that strategy. Um, now that we have a one year track record, which is still too short for a lot of institutional money, but, um, that's a new and and smaller part of our business.
2: So on your day to day, how much of your time is spent between the wealth management, retire plan and asset management?
0: That is a good question. Every day is very different. Um, I wear a lot of hats, as do we all. I mean, it's when you're in a small firm, we, we always laugh like somebody's got to unload the dishwasher. <laughs> you know, our coffee cups keep getting used and somebody's got to eventually unload the dishwasher every day. So there's just a whole lot going on. Um, I, you know, my typical day, there's really not one. So maybe it's a typical week. Um, I, you know, I might be working on. Finishing a financial plan for the morning um, and then scheduling client meetings in the middle of the day, trying to figure out when I'm going to do client reviews or plan presentation meetings or 401k um, plan review meetings. Um, And then... As the head of the investment committee, we have quarterly investment committee meetings. And so I might be working on a research project to present at the next quarterly meeting. So I might be having conference calls with investment managers to sort of learn more about the strategies that are finalists that we may be considering. Um, I I might be writing the quarterly letter. So I'm, you know... On the Bureau of Labor and Statistics website, downloading spreadsheets of all sorts of data, trying to create charts and figure out what I want to say about something like that. So it's a very wide variety, and on, and on top of all that, I'm also the compliance officer. So, um, you know, I may have to be reviewing, you know, our cybersecurity policy or onboarding, you know, a new employee who has to sign all of our paperwork. So it is really all over the place. Um, I'd say, you know, 40% of my time is in client meetings or talking to clients. It should probably be more than that. But I do, I do hold down a lot of the operational aspects of the firm because um, I'm one of the ones that's not out there trying to, to do business development. So um, I have to do a lot of, you know, a lot of the operational work as well.
2: So many interesting things here. Okay. So you're not out there going and finding new clients, um, but you have ownership in the firm. And I think that's kind of a unique, a unique element, if you would. So how did those ownership conversations kind of happen? And how did that kind of unfold?
0: I think it naturally happened because I had a very small book of business to bring to the firm. And Um, it only made sense to sort of compensate me for that. Um, but in addition to that, um, the original founder sold, um, ended up selling hundred percent of the business. And so we had one owner and, um, it was not her, uh, intention to be 100% owner. And so, um, she wanted to make sure that there was a, a strategy in place to, um, sort of start to begin to bring in other partners. And, and so I think it was in 2014 when I became, um, a partner and, um, and so, you know, over time, hopefully I will be acquiring more of a, more of a percentage ownership in the firm.
2: And so is that just, I guess you buy into the firm. Um, but how would that, so like going forward in the future ownership, is it through, obviously it's not through bringing in business. So would it just be buying more shares or kind of taking on more of a leadership role?
0: Yeah. So it would be purchasing more shares and there's many ways to do this. I mean um, there, it, it can be financed by the company, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a cash upfront, although it could be, I could offer cash. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a purchasing process um, to bring in more partners
2: and are you the only CFA on staff? I am. You yes. Are? Okay. So let's talk about this women impact strategy. Cause I think it's so interesting. How did you, how did you even get interested in this and kind of, I mean, how did this get started?
0: Yeah, this is kind of what I alluded to. One of the things I alluded to when I said being on a team has stretched me to do things that I never would have imagined. <laughs> um, I was really ingrained in I am an investment advisor and financial planner. I do asset allocation. I do holistic investment management advice. I pick uh, whether it's indexes or or active managers to implement my asset allocation strategy. It's long term. It's strategic. And of course, I don't pick stocks, you know, um, but um, we started reading some research about Women in corporate leadership, um, particularly um, a Credit Suisse report that looked at over 3,000 companies globally, and they've issued three three different reports. Every two years, they come out with another report, and they kept looking at stock performance of companies with... Um, more than no went more than zero women right so unfortunately there's not a whole bunch of companies that are like 75% women we're talking about having one woman on the board versus zero or 25% of the board being women instead of zero and the stock performance was better and you know i'm very skeptical um i you know i believe that there are certain Um, maybe tilts that you can take in a portfolio. But uh, in general, I'm pretty skeptical of active management. And so we did our own research um, to try to confirm what we were reading. And we looked at um, the S&P 500. We pulled the board composition of the companies in the S&P 500 10 years ago. So at the time, that was 2005. We looked at how many women were on the board. And then we created hypothetical portfolios of companies with zero women on the board, companies with at least one woman on the board, and then another portfolio of companies with at least 25% women on the board. And we ran the numbers and found that the companies with more women uh, outperformed. We're also looking at that now from an executive standpoint because the women impact strategy, um, which eventually came out of all this research uh, looks at both the board and and executives. Um, so we're, we're working on that white paper now, but we ended up writing a white paper about it. And then we sort of started coming up with a methodology for if we wanted to do this as a separately managed account or any other kind of product, what would it look like? And so we started building the rules of the portfolio and we didn't want to be, um, we didn't want to be a market cap weighted, you know, index offering. So we, decided to take a, a value tilt and a small cap tilt and, and also look at profitability of the companies and ended up coming up with a methodology and launching the Women Impact Strategy with seed money in April of 2016. Um, and then we began marketing it in April of this year um, to individual investors, institutional investors, family offices. We've really just begun. Um, another thing we probably need to do is market it to other advisors. And um, the performance hasn't been bad. Um, and it was actually at the one year anniversary, it was quite strong. Um, we do have a small cap tilt and small caps have underperformed this year. So you, you know you might expect that it isn't beating the benchmark net of fees this year, but it's, it's not trailing by too much. Um, so now I'm a portfolio manager in addition to, to everything else, but it's, it's a rule based strategy. It's an evidence-based strategy. I'm not, trying to, um, meet with management or make any, um, I'm not creating models of what, you know, target stock prices would be. It's really just looking at fundamentals of a company and, and the gender makeup of their leadership and building a portfolio around that.
2: So using that very kind of like evidence-based, you know, when people build out their portfolios, what portion of their portfolio would this women impact strategy kind of fit into?
0: So the portfolio is an all-cap core. We have small, mid, and large companies. There's 50 stocks in the portfolio. Um, It depends on the client. We do have some international holdings. So it's majority U.S., but some developed international companies are in there. Um, And it really – we look at it as an investment manager and say – Yes, it's sort of a um, concentrated portfolio, at least more concentrated than what we're using um, with the ETFs and the mutual funds that we invest in. So it should only be a portion of you know the stock portfolio for a company for 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 a, for a client's allocation. Um, and so it just depends on the client, um, but it is a core holding. It's not a satellite holding. It can really fit into that stock portion of a client's portfolio pretty nicely. Um, and, you know, we benchmark it to the Russell 3000 because it's all cap. Um, it's had an R squared to the, to the benchmark of about 72%. So it's not acting like the benchmark. Um, and it really just depends individually. I mean, you know, we, we can't do it for less than a certain amount of money. So certain clients can't invest in it at all. Um, and that's really on a case by case basis.
2: That's so interesting. And have you found that people are uh, really kind of open and receptive to this?
0: Yes. Um, All kinds of clients and and potential clients have been interested in it. People are assuming that we're only talking to women, but men are interested too. Um, Because anecdotally, a lot of men will start telling us these stories, whether it was their mother who was a professional or they have a very successful wife or even a daughter. And so it really resonates with all people. Um, and we've had a lot of excitement. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, you're on to something when you don't really get very much pushback at all. Even when you talk to a hundred people about it, um, there's been a a lot of very warm reception. Um, so we're very excited about it.
2: Yeah. Well, it's such a great way to implement a lot of like the socially responsible investing in a really kind of thoughtful and unique way.
0: It is. It's a different slice. And when I first started investing, socially responsible investing was like a place where investors went, they were willing to accept a lower return to to align their investments with their values. And today, um, it's been rebranded as ESG investing. And... What we're seeing is that looking at ESG characteristics is really a risk tool. And it's not about accepting a guaranteed lower rate of return. It's really that some of these metrics are ways to identify ways to reduce risk in a portfolio and potentially even add alpha.
2: As you kind of look forward, like what's next for you um, kind of in your evolving career? What are you working on that you're really excited about?
0: Yeah. What's next is uh, we need to grow this firm um, and it needs to get bigger and we want to grow all three areas. Wealth management, doing more financial planning. We're looking always looking at technology. I mean, that's a huge, huge thing in our business. How, how do we make it easier for clients to do business with it? How do we make it more efficient or just more beneficial through technology? Um, so we want to grow wealth management and financial planning. Uh, we also want to grow um, our retirement consulting business and advisory business is really taken off. Um, we have recently begun offering to be 338 fiduciaries for plans, which, is, which really just means we're taking discretion. So rather than just going to a plan sponsor and saying, here's the fund lineup that we recommend, we have discretion over that. Um, and so that's a new offering for us that I don't think a lot of firms in this area are, are offering. Um, And then, of course, the women impact strategy, the sky's the limit there. Um, We're, you know, full speed ahead on PR and marketing for that. So um, we really want all three of these areas to grow and um, and hopefully become a much bigger firm.
2: So looking back on your career, what are there any changes or anything that you wish you would have done differently?
0: I wish that I had been. More patient and more optimistic early in my career. Um, When I started working at Wealthstream, I really learned from the founder there, Michael Goodman, about this concept of the power of positivity. And I was kind of a pessimist before then. Um, I always kind of tended to see the negatives in all the aspects. And the day that I sort of flipped and became an optimist is sort of the day that everything just got better in life. And so if I could have been an optimist from the beginning, I um, I think that that would have been a wonderful change to have made.
2: Is there a book or any resource specifically that people could go look for if they if they kind of want to explore that idea more?
0: <laughs> um, I don't remember off the top of my head. I definitely saw an amazing speaker once that. It is just not coming to mind uh, the name who spoke about happiness. And it was really fascinating. Um, But I'm sure if you Google happiness and the power of positivity, something good will come up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's so great to be in the Internet age. (laughs) It really is. So as we kind of wrap up here, is there any so looking back and, you know, knowing Audiences being, you know, newer planners, whether they be new to the profession, straight out of college, or even career changers, what what advice would you have for them?
0: Be hungry, be seeking of information, take it all in, read books, um, spend time on the things that matter, spend less time on the things that don't. Um, and get excited because the dynamics, the demographics of our industry are such that there's just not going to be enough um, planners and advisors around to take on the business once the baby boomer generation retires. And just by sheer numbers, we should be excited because a lot of business is going to come our way. And if you're just set up um, in a way that you know who you want to serve, which kind of clients you want to service, and you have a good offering for them. Um, it's going to be a really wonderful um, career and opportunity. When I first started, um, when I graduated college, I so badly wanted to be an investment banker. I just thought I wanted to be an investment banker and work 100 hours a week. And I interviewed with all of them. And if you're familiar with that process, I went on these super Saturdays where they make you do 20 interviews after they take you out the night before and try to get you to drink too much alcohol. And I really thought that that was the thing for me. And I was so depressed because none of them offered me a job. And I had to go into retail, which I thought was just not exciting and nobody was going into retail and the pay wasn't as good. And and lo and behold, I wake up 10 years later, we've had a financial crisis and retail, what's you know what I now call wealth management, is the place that everyone wants to be because all of a sudden now it's a great career. It's a, it's a work-life balance that is just so much better. And, um, I would just say, you know, be excited, um, about the future because it's, it's going to be a really exciting time.
1: As always, thank you for listening and be on the lookout for more information coming soon about our partnership with the FPA. I cannot wait to start sharing all the things that we've been working on behind the scenes with you soon.